Welcome, I'm Melissa Caston and this is Just Cases. For years we've heard of scandal after scandal at major corporations. The global financial crisis brought into stark view some of the catastrophic consequences of corporate misbehaviour. A decade on from the GFC, the current Banking Royal Commission in Australia is highlighting how little has changed in some of our largest financial institutions. Today we're talking about the people at the helm of major corporations, the company directors, and we're going to rewind to another banking scandal of over a hundred years ago and how it's got us to where we are today. Steve Carabas is a corporations law expert at Monash Law School, and I'm here with James. Hello. And Steve. Hi. Legally speaking, Steve, what is a company? Why do we have them? Initially, corporate, the corporations that we understand today um, really started because you had this uh, growth and exploration that was uh, taking place during, uh, I guess, when England and the Netherlands were going out and exploring the world. And people were going to really far off parts of the world and they wanted to know how they can do this. And they didn't have enough money. And so they wanted to get people to invest in companies. So we created this idea of a corporation which people can invest shares in. Uh, And people did do that. And it allowed for a lot of exploration of the world. And a lot of what we know today exists because of that. And nothing went wrong. A lot went wrong. (laughs) Um, So we've always kind of overlooked that. Uh, And that's been the real big debate. How much do we value the uh, economic prosperity that we've gotten from uh, this uh, economic vehicle that we created versus the the harm that we've created um, because of this economic vehicle? And there are people that argue we can change it slightly to improve it. And there are people that take more radical approaches and say we need to think of something completely new. So can I take you to the case that we're looking at today, the Cardiff Savings Bank case? Can you tell yeah. us a little about this about this character, the Marquis of Butte? So this uh, uh, character, he seems uh, like a very interesting man. Uh, he comes from a long line of, I guess, aristocrats. Um, I was about to say Aristocats, the Disney movie, but no, <laughs> Aristocrats. Um, that next week? Ne- that's the next week's uh, podcast. Uh, so he comes from a long line. I think that he was uh, from a illegitimate line of uh, uh, a royalty uh, that his family derived from uh, that line of royalty, Scottish royalty. Um, and his father seems to have been a prime minister for King George III, I think. Yes. So uh, it's a very uh, illustrious uh, line of, uh, of, of family. Um, and uh, in essence, this guy <laughs> came to the, uh, I don't know how you would pronounce it, Marquisette? Mar- Yes. He became the marquee. You could take um, anything right now. Anything and, right now. And I mean, you're the scholar, so you certainly fine right with now. me. Um, but he, uh, this, this inherited. Uh, he inherited the title uh, at six months old. What year is this? That was in the 1840s or the 1850s when he was six months old. He was 38 at the time of the case, which was 1892. So, so many. His old man has just. Cut. He died. So the title passed on to him. And with the title came the title of being the company director of this big holding. Well, this is a, a slight little confusion here with the with the case. I mean, it's a very ye old type of case, and right. they weren't really talking about directors in, in this instance. He became the president. Okay. Um, and w- the funny thing about this uh, case here, he was never really officially declared 
the president of the company. They just kind of referred to him as the president because he inherited the, the title. And that's an interesting little quirk as well, which shows a bit of a difference now. He just became it because right. he was the, the son. So I guess in what you could say is it was like a paper title because he took yes. it on according to the documentation, but he took yeah. it on as a six-month-old and really yeah. had no involvement with the running of the company at all. Not at all. And in fact, they call him a figurehead right. in, in, the, in the company. And that was, in essence, his defence. He, he wanted to be a figurehead. If, if we look at the... What was he called? The president. Mike, the president, he called the yes. president of the company, and the company was the Carter Savings Bank. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's also worth noting about this was not a small portfolio that this guy inherited who was his dad like how much did this guy inherit as a six-month-old so i think that it was either his father or grandfather that in essence founded cardiff (laughs) right so he came from a pretty famous family and what he inherited i think at the time made him the richest man in the world uh, at oh. the time, wow. um, so yeah, as he was a, I would have loved to have been a six-month-old that <laughs> inherited that. He's like so, six-month-old Bill Gates. Yes, basically. yes, that's how I like to think about it. <laughs> so, so he becomes part of this corporate structure, which runs the the Cardiff Savings Banks and and a number of other things. Yeah, and then what happens from then on? So I guess he doesn't really pay very much attention. As James said, he had a lot of other things that he was doing and he was much more interested in those. He was, a, I guess, a reluctant businessman. He mm-hmm. was more int- interested in architecture and um, uh, a lot of other things like that. I think he, he was at St. Andrews and he uh, helped hire the first female lecturer in medicine at St. Andrews. So he had a lot of other philanthropic interests. Um, and this was kind of just the thing that he inherited. Mm-hmm. And he only ever went to one meeting, um, one, I guess, what we would now call a board meeting, mm. when he was 21 years of age. And uh, from what it sounds like in the case, he just signed off on the minutes. Uh, what happened was you had a, a kind of a board structure. So other people that we would now call directors, uh, and they were looking after the company. They were managing it. But they had hired someone to do some of the everyday business. Mm-hmm. And this guy had worked there for about 30 years, I think, and he was uh, defrauding the company. I think he, he uh, took a lot of money from the, <laughs> from the Who bank. Who knew? Yes, I know, right? Um, it seems like they relied on him a lot. Yeah. And he uh, was uh, engaging in some, uh, I guess, shady business. He took some money and then he be- the, the bank became uh, unable to pay its debts uh, and uh, pay deposits. So it we, we went bust, what we would call uh, insolvent. Okay, so that happens when the Marquis now 38 years old and a proper yes. adult. So the liquidators step in and they want to, what, chase him yes. for the for liability for all the debts and the, the yeah. lost money, right? So the, the, the liquidators, when they go in, they try to get as much assets... Um, usually we think of money, they try to get as much of that back so that they can pay off uh, generally the company's creditors. Mm-hmm. So the, the company will owe someone money and the liquidator is there to get as much of the money back that they can and then divide it up equally. And what the liquidator said here was that the directors should be personally liable. Uh, the directors including uh, the Marquis of, of Boot. Well, you know, I can see why because he's holding on to this great fortune. Yeah. And so he actually has he's assets got a lot that of money. could be put to paying back all the creditors and the little people who put their money in the bank. Yeah. Um, And that's generally, you know, um, often in uh, commercial uh, cases, you you look for the money. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and in this instance, you've got the richest guy in the world at the time uh, potentially liable. Uh, and the liquidator didn't just go for after him, though. They went after every director. Mm. Um, and this was, I think, the second case um, that came about out of this uh, insolvency. And in the first case, they actually found the director liable. Uh, and the difference here was that uh, the marquee uh, had no involvement in the running of the company. And they found that because he had no involvement, he couldn't be liable. He didn't know what was happening. Right. So he's off gallivanting the world, I assume. and um... Engaging in his philanthropic interests. He sounds like a really serious guy <laughs> and a guy that we benefited off a lot. Yeah. Uh, but he wasn't interested in the bank's operation. Mm. Was that held to be kind of good enough that you can be in charge of a company even if you're just a figurehead and not pay attention to what's going on day to day? In fact, back then, a lot of the companies, the directors were figureheads. Um, there weren't that many directors around. Uh, if you like, we're all very used to companies; like they they really penetrate every aspect of our lives now. But companies weren't as, uh, I guess, prevalent then. There weren't as many people that could be directors then. And often you had a director that, you know, I I know someone. You know, someone is working as a director in other companies, and so they'll just be a director here mm. as well. Um, it was a limited pool of mm-hmm. directors, and you often had these figureheads um, that were. I, I guess managing the company, but not really managing the company. You're listening to Just Cases, and today we're talking about the Cardiff Savings Bank case, how it shaped corporate responsibility and how directors are held liable even today. And if you like Just Cases, you might also like Thought Capital, a podcast that challenges the way we think about business. Thought Capital explores ideas like why companies should embrace whistleblowers rather than shun them, and how can Donald Trump teach us to be better leaders? I don't actually know. Uh, Thought Capital is hosted by senior business journalist Michael Pascoe. You can find it wherever you usually listen to podcasts. So what exactly did the court say in their decision? So there was a, you know, there's a whole load of uh, ye old speak in this case. It's it's a bit of a oh, hard one to follow. Just lay it on. Yeah, I'll, I'll get really into that. No, um, I have to skip over a lot of that myself because it talks about a lot of old legislation, law and stuff. But uh, in essence, the court says, um, even though you're arguing that you're not what we would now call a director, you are a director. But the thing is that you had no involvement um, in this company and therefore we can't hold you liable for the uh, bad behaviour of others or the, or the negligent behaviour of your fellow directors uh, because you weren't there. If you were at the meetings, if you knew that something may be going wrong and you did nothing, then you may be liable. Mm. And in fact, that's what they um, found with the previous director in the previous case. He was called the trustee and manager. But they said uh, you were actually involved in the management of the company, you knew that things were a bit uh, iffy uh, and you didn't do your job and therefore you're liable. Whereas this guy, uh, the Marquis, was uh, not involved. He had received some letters and annual statements saying the, the business is running as it should and the court said that's enough. You can rely on that. That's a really weird result because that actually gives an incentive to yeah. uh, to a marquee or a lord or whoever yeah. to turn a blind eye to the operations that they're that they're on paper yeah. running, and so actually 
kind of strategically, you're better off turning a blind Not eye knowing. than yeah. actually participating. Well, I receive and, parking yeah. infringements in the mail and speeding <laughs> fines, and yeah. they don't go away. Well, I, I, I um, always wanted to look behind this case because I felt there may be something else going on because uh, the Marquis said, I went to a meeting, I, I don't remember the meeting. I have been told that I got annual statements and that, never saw them, I was always overseas. But even though he said that, the court assumed that he had received these mm-hmm. letter, these uh, notices yeah. and looked at them and then from that uh, assumed that the, co- the company was running as it should. Yeah. When in essence he had said, no, I, I just don't even. remember any. I don't know anything. <laughs> so there may have been something else going on in the background. I'm not sure about that. It seemed like, That seems like a little bit of a, a little quirk in, yeah. the, in the case. Um, and in fact, the... Uh, the opposing side said this is going to encourage people to not be actively involved. Mm. And the court, uh, again, gave a bit of a vague answer in this area, saying, well, that's not really what happened in this case. And it kind of seems like that's exactly what happened. <laughs> so <laughs> so it's a little bit of a weird, weird one in terms of the outcome, but it did for a very long time uh, form one example of how we used to treat the directors who are in what we call the managers of, mm. of the of the company. It used to treat them in uh, on a substantive basis. We we say uh, it looked at them individual. What's your knowledge and involvement in the company? And if you have no involvement in the company, if you have very little knowledge in the company, then you're in a better situation than if you were involved in the company or had a lot of knowledge. So it's, it's kind of what we call a subjective test. test. It's a test it of is. what I have in my mind going yes. on, not what the evidence in front actually says is there yeah. or what I should do. Yeah, and that was, uh, that was in, this is a, a UK case, but it was also what we adopted in Australia, and it was exactly that. Um, so, they, you know, you, you had a lot of um, directors that maybe shouldn't have been directors uh, that were getting away with this kind of stuff, I guess. There is a particular passage in the judgment. I'm going to call it a passage, and I'm sure that the two of you will not call it a passage. I'm fine with you calling it a passage. I won't object. Let's go with passage. (laughs) Um, There's a a particular passage in the judgment that that kind of highlights the the court's approach here to the marquee um, and to company directors in general. Are you able to uh, read us that passage. Okay, so the passage is uh, where the, the court is now explaining why the Marquis is not liable. And it begins, Here the Marquis of Boots took no part in the conduct of the business of the bank. It may be that the neglect, as he certainly omitted to attend the meetings to which he was summoned. But neglect or omission to attend meetings is not, in my opinion, the same thing as neglect or omission of a duty which ought to be performed at those meetings. If indeed he had knowledge or notice either that no meetings of trustees or managers were being held or that a duty which ought to be discharged at those meetings was not being performed, it might be right to hold that he was guilty of neglect or omission of the duty. That, so, hey, I've got, like, my bullshit radar is just going crazy right now. It should be. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so they say, basically, you have a number of duties as a director of a company, but if you're not at the meeting, then you couldn't have known that you were supposed to exercise mm. those duties. 
Is that kind of what they say? But, but Let, wouldn't attending a meeting be... Let's, uh, so we need to, uh, I guess, maybe narrow it so that we can limit the, the bullshit essence mm. factor. Uh, this is really a case that looks at one of the director's duties, what we call care, skill and diligence, or what I like to call uh, you know, having some level of competence. There are other duties, you know, um, good faith, acting in the best interests of the company that this case doesn't necessarily look at and that today you may have a different outcome. But this case, really, the proposition stands for a really low standard of competence uh, or care, skill and diligence. And in essence, what they're saying is if you've been hired or you exist as a figurehead, then we're going to take that into account. And if you don't go to the meetings, then we're not going to attribute liability to you. Um, and that's not the standard that we would necessarily want today, I guess. So that takes us to today. I mean, is Australian law still consistent with this old case from the 1890s? 1890s. No, it's been uh, almost completely reversed, uh, which well, I think... I'm kind of glad to hear yes. that. <laughs> In a way, um, we may have lost the positives of the Marquis of Butte if he had to take on a very managerial role of the bank. Mm. Uh, he did a lot of very other important things. So... Uh, well, yeah, but come on, he could have said, I no longer want to be a director or a president and I'll yeah, go off and do definitely. my important things my important... and leave the job to someone who actually yeah. wants to do this uh, job. Although, I should also say, I don't think he was really being paid for this. Right. You know, so it was, you know, it's, a, it's, no a, it's a bit, yeah, it's a bit of a weird one. Um, and But to, you're right, today it's changed. Um, and we've got a, a more objective test uh, in both what we call uh, the common law, so uh, judge-made law, and uh, statutes, so legislation. Uh, and this really took off, particularly in the 80s, uh, when we were having a lot of corporate insolvency scandals and people were very unhappy with this type of situation. And they were saying, why aren't these um, people being held liable? Why aren't we lifting what we call the corporate veil? At the start of uh, our discussion, we said that the corporation can be treated separately from the people that make it up. Um, and in this instance, they were saying, if people are acting... Uh, inappropriately as managers, we may want to hold them liable, and the law changed as a result. Uh, the AWA and Daniels cases in particular uh, reversed uh, this uh, finding or this outcome that we would have of care, skill and diligence for directors. And when was, when's this? This is in the 80s? This... this was taking place in the 80s. There was a whole series of cases, not only in Australia, um, internationally. So, And then you're having a lot of commission reports uh, looking into this and saying, uh, th this doesn't seem to work. And uh, in, in the, the court cases, the judges started to impose an objective test rather than a subjective test. So, so we've moved kind of a very low threshold of competence to an expectation of a very high threshold of competence. Higher. Or higher <laughs> threshold. Yes. And I guess the point is if, if a person isn't prepared to take on that responsibility, they shouldn't just be on paper. That, yeah. in, in that role. And that's one of the, the key findings of the courts in the AWA cases. They said, if you uh, don't think that you're suited to this position, don't take the position, reject it. And they said the, the, the days of these kind of figurehead directors are over. Um, you have to have a more active part in the management of the company. Uh, they didn't go uh, so far as to require day-to-day interaction. That wouldn't really be very realistic for a director. They said we have uh, executives, CEOs yeah. and stuff that, that do that, but directors have to at least have some level of involvement in the running of the company and most importantly in the, the finances of the company, the uh, financial documents. So you don't have to be an accountant, but you have to at least look 
at the financial documents. And I don't think that the Marquis would have done that. So we can no longer have like a sleeping director. Exactly. That's the, the, the terminology that they used. Right. Um, uh, so you, you can't do that anymore. You have to um, at least have some knowledge of the of the the company's uh, workings and uh, one of the laws that we have in particular that would have been relevant here relates to insolvency so when a company goes bust um, uh, directors can be liable uh, uh, personally if a company goes uh, bust and they've been trading while they've been going while they've been insolvent and one of the defenses is you you weren't involved in the management, but you have to have a good reason. Mm. So it has to be a really serious illness or something. It wouldn't be I've just been out of the country like the marquee would have mm. been, you know, doing his other stuff. So so, so everything's fixed now, right? <laughs> Not well done. Yeah. Okay, we're finished here. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go home. Well, I mean, there there is an improvement, I think, uh, in terms of the actual laws that we have and what re- we require in terms of competence. Um, but that doesn't mean, as we have been, uh, I guess, seeing in the past year or so, or, or the past decade, mm. um, that there's no uh, problems in terms of uh, directors acting badly. So then, can I just take you back? What happened at the end of this case? The Marquis uh, was let off, but it was a it was a big embarrassment for him at the time. I think that he overcame that, and his legacy. Uh, has been one of amazing uh, architectural design that he, he, he worked with in Cardiff, some Gothic kind of uh, churches and architecture and stuff like that. He, uh, in, his, in his younger days, he caused quite a controversy and he um, converted to Catholicism. And that was the scandal at the time. Um, and he died at a rather young age. I think it was in 1900, so not very long after this case. Mm. And his heart is now buried at the Mount of Olives. I'm in, sorry? Uh, his heart is uh, buried at the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. Um, well, I mean, why not? Why, uh, so it's a... I had never really heard that until I read the case. I didn't know that you did that. Uh, he's, the rest of his is, body is... Is that a thing? Apparently. <laughs> apparently it is. I don't know if other people's hearts are buried at the Mount of Olives. I, I don't know. I want to get on board. I mean, in terms of... Like, if you could send different body parts to different parts of the world, that's fantastic. Yeah. I, I read, oh, I mean, horrifying. <laughs> yes. I, I read as well that he was a knight grand cross of the Holy Sepulchre. Knight of the Order of St. Gregory the Great and hereditary keeper of the Rhodesy Castle. Yep. He sounds like the kind of guy who would have his heart buried at the Mount of Olives. It sounds all very, um, what, what is it, Da Vinci Code type yeah. stuff. I think of that kind of thing when I <laughs> read his titles. Uh, but he sounds like a really interesting guy. I'm hap- I'm, I know that it would have been terrible for the people at the time, but uh, I, I'm kind of happy that the case happened and I got to find out a little bit about him and all of the good stuff that he's done in addition to the very bad stuff that he did as a director of this bank. <laughs> well, join the club. We're very <laughs> glad to have had you here to tell the story. Thank, Thank you, you, Steve. Thank you, guys. If you like listening to Just Cases, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you do listen to podcasts. I look forward to your company in the next episode. <laughs>